Psychology in Seattle. Hey, deserving listeners. Today we have a special guest on the podcast, Bill Eddy. He wrote a book called Why We Elect Narcissists and Sociopaths and How We Can Stop. And I get a lot of emails from publishers and publicists asking for, uh, asking if I would like to interview their uh, client on the podcast. And I turn most of them down because I don't think they're a good fit. But I thought that Bill would be a good person I have on the podcast because we get a lot of emails and we occasionally talk about this topic as to the people we elect into office. There's a lot of speculation about their personality and why they got there, why they do what they do. Is, is, it a, is it a disorder? Is there something different about these people? And of course, history gets pulled in. Hitler, Stalin, all these people start to uh, enter the conversation. And well, Bill wrote an entire book about these things. So I thought we would have him on the podcast to clarify at least his viewpoint on it. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Bill. Great. Thanks you. I'm glad to be on, Kirk. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. Bill, can you introduce yourself to podcast land? Uh, Sure. Just real briefly, I started out as a social worker, became a clinical social worker doing child and family counseling in psychiatric hospitals, outpatient clinics. Then I decided that I really like conflict resolution and decided to go to law school so I could do legal conflict resolution, especially mediation out of court, dealing with legal issues. And when I changed careers, I discovered that a lot of legal cases are driven by people with psychological problems. And so I recognized the high conflict personalities in all of this and started writing about it, wrote a book, I got on the internet, started getting requests from lawyers, judges, mediators, and therapists to explain these high-conflict personalities and their relationship with personality disorders. And so fast forward to the present, I've mostly been writing and teaching about interpersonal high-conflict situations, and everybody knows somebody like this, and I realized we're starting to see this in politics. So I thought I'd write a book about this, explaining what I was so familiar with as a mental health professional and lawyer. Right. So the book title is Why We Elect Narcissists and Sociopaths, which you write about uh, those two constructs. But your main construct that you write about is high conflict personality. And this is your construct that you coined, correct? Yes. And it overlaps with five personality disorders. Although not everybody has a disorder, they tend to have some traits of these disorders. And so if someone has a high-conflict personality, we're looking at some signs of possible personality disorders. So there's a lot of overlap, and I've studied and written about personality disorders really the last 40 years since I learned about them in 1980. So everyone will, I'm sure, ask you when you are at a dinner party and you say that you wrote a book about this sort of thing is, is Trump a high conflict personality? And I, I would say yes. And I, I want to say a few cautionary notes. 
First of all, because I am a mental health professional licensed to diagnose mental disorders in California, I have to abide by certain standards, including I don't diagnose someone with a mental health problem who I haven't met. With that said, high conflict personality isn't a diagnosis. It's a description of conflict behavior with four characteristics, preoccupation with blaming others, all or nothing thinking and solutions, unmanaged emotions, and extreme behaviors, things 90% of people wouldn't do. So I'm comfortable saying, yes, he has a high conflict personality. I won't say whether I think he has a personality disorder or other mental illness. So can you, uh, and you do in the book a little bit, uh, provide some of your justification for that uh, application? Yeah. So for mental health professionals, there's several di- several criteria, mostly is generally about nine or 10 for diagnosing personality disorders and, and a lot of other mental disorders. So these traits, I talk about four of them in the book. So I'm not diagnosing a disorder, but we're seeing signs. And so traits of a narcissistic uh, problem include a drive to be superior, that they see themselves as better than everyone else, and they want everybody else to agree with them. They have grandiose ideas. They have fantasies of unlimited power and a lack of empathy. On the other hand, sociopaths have a drive to dominate people, push them around, move them around, uh, separate them, uh, sometimes kill them. They're very deceitful. There's a lot of constant lying, uh, conning, pretending to be other people than they are, uh, misleading people, um, and, and laughing about it. Often they really enjoy uh, hurting people, embarrassing, humiliating people. And they're highly aggressive. So they take risks that most people wouldn't. Um, they're fast. They're fast and they're fast talkers. And they lack remorse. They really don't care if they hurt you. And like I said, sometimes they enjoy it. So these two, in the extreme, are personality disorders. But many people just have some traits, which is not a mental health diagnosis. But these are some of the traits, if they have enough, then they have a personality disorder. So this is some hints, in a sense, of what they might have. Some people have these traits, but not a disorder. But if they're a high-conflict person as well, that's when they become dangerous because they're preoccupied with targets of blame. Right. So you talk about how there are, in the book, there are narcissistic traits, and at the extreme end, there's the disorder. You have sociopathic traits, at the extreme end, you have antisocial personality disorder, and then you have high conflict personality traits. Do I have that right? Yes, exactly. And, and that's a description more of their conflict behavior. Which is, it overlaps often with sociopathy and narcissism, but it can be just on its own. You can be non-narcissistic, non-sociopathic, non-psychopathic, and still possess some high conflict personality traits. Is that right? 
Yeah. So most most people, most of your listeners would recognize somebody in their life who has that pattern of preoccupied with blaming others, all or nothing thinking, unmanaged emotions, and extreme behavior. So absolutely right. They may not be narcissistic at all. They might not be sociopathic at all. Um, but that pattern of behavior suggests that they may have some issues, whether they have a disorder or not, isn't clear. So why do we elect them? Well, this is what's fascinating, is I really think it's a combination of these high-conflict traits and modern viral electronic media. And let me explain that. So high-conflict people or people with high-conflict personalities tend to be dramatic, tend to be attention-getting. They talk a lot. Um, They're always in a crisis. They always see somebody else as the problem. They're preoccupied with blaming others. And that's very appealing. Um, It grabs your attention. Our brains are designed to go, "Uh uh-oh, This person says they're a problem or this person is a problem. We better pay attention here. So they have those personality traits that grab your attention. And today we see, especially in politics, but in our culture in general, there's so many forms of media that the competition to get attention is very strong. And so the people that really attract attention to various forms of media are high-conflict people, or what I call HCPs for short. And by the way, if you know someone like this, don't tell them you think they're an HCP. (laughs) Says I'll blame you next. Um, But the idea is that modern media now is really so fast and so quick to grab the emotional behavior Uh, and and emotions of high-conflict people. They're the best at this. So it's really kind of a marriage of HCPs and high-emotion media. And if you look back over the last 10, 50 years, you go, why now? Why is this happening now? Why are there so many HCPs in politics and in the news uh, today? And that's because of the competition, I believe, to get attention. And so they're getting hired, they're getting elected, they're getting drawn in because this is who gets attention. And they don't have to have any other skill. So running for office, anyone can run for office. You don't have to have experience in government, economics, problem solving, leadership, anything. You can just be really good at getting attention and you can run for office. And if you learn some of the things to say, which I believe the narcissist and sociopath traits are willing to say, they're willing to lie, make up attractive stories, then they can get elected. And in the book, you talk about how Stalin and Hitler rose to power as also examples of high conflict personalities, as, a, as in addition to also being narcissistic and psychopathic. That yes. was before. That was before social media. How, how did? How do you figure that into your conceptualization? Well, what's fascinating is this is when electronic media began, and so Hitler was really the first politician to make major use of the radio, and he was able to speak to people in their homes for the first time as a politician. So he spoke with them personally, which is how seduction works. 
And narcissists and sociopaths are the two most seductive personalities on the planet. And so he was able to speak to people in their homes. He would spin fantasies of how great he was going to make Germany and fantasies of how everyone was suffering because less than 1% of the population, Jewish people, were somehow controlling everything. And so he really spun these fantasies, but with a lot of emotion. And so he was able to reach them. And one of the things that's important in how this works is it's emotional repetition in isolation. So when this is the only voice you're hearing, this is the only information you're getting, it starts to become real. And so for millions of uh, people in Germany. The population in Germany um, before it was in the 19, around 1930 was uh, around 60 million, and there was around 500,000 Jews. So they're less than 1% of the population. And yet he was able to really turn the whole country emotionally into a military machine and a hating machine. And and he's not the only one. People say, don't compare anybody to Hitler. That's fine. Well, look at Stalin. Look at Mao Zedong. Look at Putin. You know, <laughs> we've, we have the same pattern of how they get elected. So we've been electing high conflict personalities for a long time. Uh, and you're saying that with media and the quickness of internet media, we're more likely to elect high-conflict personality people? Yeah, and and I would not agree that we've been electing them very much in the past. But when that has happened, when one has come forward, like the Hitler, the Stalin, the Mao Zedong, the Pol Pot, the Idi Amin, um, all of those folks, um, then they're successful at this. Today, we're starting to see a lot more all at once. And I think in the last 10 years, that a lot of that is social media, but a lot of it is the saturation of the um, uh, you know cable news seven twenty four seven c span all of politics is now a major form of entertainment, not just in the United States but around the world and there 's such a blurring of entertainment and government that um, the, the tide is tipped to the entertainment side and the best entertainer will get elected. And we're seeing that in a lot of countries in Europe, South America, the ones that say the worst things are the ones that people vote for or enough people vote for and everyone else gets divided. And that's another issue. So are you saying that in the past, before we had social media, we would have uh, the, the high conflict personality politicians who would run for office would be less able to, um, I don't know, use the communication system to garner much more attention and, and much more positive attention, I suppose. Is, is that yeah. what you're saying? Yeah, they, they didn't get as far. And I think a good comparison here was uh, Joe McCarthy um, in the United States. He used TV as his new media. What we're seeing is each new media gets dominated first by people with these narcissistic and sociopathic traits, and they're the only voice you hear. 
And so McCarthy had four or so years of hearings um, in the early 1950s looking for communists in the federal government. Um, and he had a list of 200, and the next day he had a list of 300. And it turns out there was no list and there were no communists in the federal government like that. And yet he was able to kind of rise and then fall because he, first of all, just was way over the top with this, but also people caught on to him. It took four years. And I think, you know, when people look back at Hitler, it took him, basically, he invaded um, uh, uh, Czechoslovakia, I think it was, Austria first, but 1939, and by four years later, he committed suicide. He was losing. Um, but you see, all of these folks get found out because it's really a fantasy that they're presenting, but they can present it for a while with new media. I think you'll find, let's say, with Twitter, that there's one big voice on Twitter these days. When there's two big voices on Twitter, you're not going to be as as influenced because you're going to hear contradictory opinions. You're going to have to think about it. But in his in history, people haven't thought when they've had emotional repetition in isolation. That's the only voice they hear. They absorb it and believe it. So, are you saying that as time goes on, we will, as a society, learn from our mistakes and uh, the future high conflict personality? Uh, you know, as politicians who try to influence and garner votes through Twitter won't be able to do so as successfully? I, I, I really believe that, that, you know, one person gets to use the media first and get away with it. But then you have a lot of voices like let's take the radio. So Hitler was the voice that people were hearing and the emotion they were absorbing. But now you've got, you know, all kinds of radio. So freedom of speech is one of the biggest factors to compete with this so that you have many different voices and you go, oh, I'm not listening to that station. I'm going to listen to this station. And why it's recommended that people listen to more than one source of news, except for your program, of course. But <laughs> the, idea, the idea is when you have competing ideas, you have to think. When you just have one idea and it's repeated emotionally, it grabs your brain, it grabs your amygdala and tells the message, you have to be afraid, the same message over and over, the same people, the same finger pointing. Um, that's hard to resist. People really absorb that. And with the decrease in uh, newspapers, for example, um, people are absorbing things much more emotionally. And they're not having another point of view that they're getting where they have to think like you do when you read print media and you can pick it up, put it down at will. I enjoy your optimism. I tend to be <laughs> uh, optimistic as well and, and enjoy those. And I find it's somewhat accurate, or at least the extreme pessimistic view to me doesn't usually pan out. But what some people would say to that, your argument that, uh, things will correct over time is that uh, Trump, when he was uh, attacking immigrants and specifically Mexican immigrants, uh, that was the boogeyman. And that was the way he was 
garnering attention, you know, the same way that McCarthy was targeting communists and the same way Stalin was uh, targeting uh, the West, I suppose, in the same way that um, Hitler was targeting Jews, um, that at the time that uh, Trump was doing those kinds of things, there was a lot of voices. He, you know, Trump was not the only and certainly not the first person on Twitter. So, uh, you know, the, the analogy doesn't necessarily hold up. Well, I think it, I think it does because when you're only hearing that voice, you'll notice the polls go, oh, my goodness, there's this terrible, t- terrible problem coming from Mexicans. And then when you hear all these other voices, then the polls go down about that. And it's interesting that when, when Trump um, wades into an issue like immigration, that the net effect, you know, six months to a year later, is that more people favor immigration, more people see the benefit of immigrants, and, and fewer people see them as, you know, an evil, dangerous threat. It's a problem. Certainly, it's a problem to solve. And borders for all countries are an issue they always have to address. But it's not a crisis. When it was a crisis, if you even want to call it that, was 10 years ago when the numbers were much higher. And so I think what you see is when you just have one voice, uh, people believe that voice. When you have many voices, people are more likely to figure out what the reality is what the truth is, and what the best approach is. So, so I, then, I'm optimistic that way. Well, I, I, I absolutely want to believe that. Uh, I, I generally believe that things will bend towards justice, as Martin Luther King said. Um, so uh, we'll see with this one. Um, but, certainly, it, it's not a popular opinion. The popular yeah. opinion is we're doomed and Twitter is ruining our lives. And uh, it's just it's all downhill from here. I just think we lack the skills and, and that's what we're trying to learn. That's well, I like that. And I, I think it holds, I think it holds water because it makes sense that, you know, when we look back at McCarthyism, it seems so quaint, right? It's like, Oh, you know, all these uh, uh, paranoid people and you have this paranoid politician. And, but of course at the time it was, not quaint. It was genuinely scary to people in the late 40s and 50s as the uh, USSR gained power and took over Eastern Europe slowly and uh, started gaining nuclear weapons and there were threats. It it was, you know, a genuine threat to us. If we didn't defend ourselves, then the Soviet Union could have and might have been motivated to invade and take over the Western hemisphere and, and eradicate our way of living and totally change our society. And so it was, it was a real threat and people were actually legitimately and, and rationally afraid uh, for, for good reasons. And when you have a politician uh, and the way that I view it is you have a lot of people trying to be elected. You have a lot of people trying to get powerful. You have a lot of people trying to be heard. And certain voices tend to, uh, through evolution of culture and, you know, in the, in the, and memes that uh, tend to get responded to in, in, a, in a different way. So uh, when, so for every McCarthy, 
at the time. There were all these other voices saying other things. You know, maybe there was even an anti-Mexican immigration uh, politician at the time. Maybe there was a pro-communist at the time. Maybe there was a moderate voice at the time. But since society was legitimately scared for, you know, good or bad reasons, the McCarthy voice was the one that got power and was able to, and McCarthy was able to use that power. Similar to Trump is there were a lot of politicians uh, three years ago, four years ago, trying to get the ticket for president or whatever kind of office for Democrats, Republicans, and, and otherwise. And, and why did Trump's voice become the one that dominated to the point where he was elected? Well, there must have been a groundswell or an ongoing terror, uh, a panic around immigration and Mexican immigration in particular that he just might have randomly tapped into. Uh, I think a lot of people agree that he didn't even think he was going to get elected. And it was a little, it was like pretty surprised when it actually happened and they didn't really have a plan for it. And so um, he, he stumbled upon, uh, you know, the 50, uh, the fifties version of communist panic. And, uh, and it, um, and so over time, as uh, it, the topic has is becoming talked about more with these other voices that you're talking about. And we're not just talking about educated people. We're talking about all sorts of people who, you know, have all sorts of different echo chambers. Eventually the voices will get to them and the panic will get reduced. And as you say in the data that a more reasonable point of view emerges. And then the next person that tries to capital, you know, the next politician who tries to hammer on the anti-immigration, anti-Mexican, uh, ticket will lose because uh, uh, we will have, as a society, on average, learned from our mistakes. Is that what you're saying? I think basically that's what I'm saying. But I do want to add a note of caution. While I'm, I'm primarily an optimist, um, I also see, especially from the research for this book, how bad things often get before they get better. And so I'm concerned that there may be, there's the potential for you know a lot of destruction um a lot of death to happen with leaders like this who maybe find that issue doesn't stick but maybe there's another issue because in their in their bones is a drive to dominate other people and basically to go to war they're always at war with the people around them but finding new targets of blame overseas or next door. And so they're, they're kind of, you know, like a, a hand grenade or a time bomb that could really be damaging if it goes off. And the question is, will it go off? So far it hasn't. So far, even though Trump, for example, really shows the high conflict personality inclination to fighting. Um, that's, that's his, that's his comfort zone is fighting. Fortunately, he's done his fighting in trade wars rather than, um, military wars, but there's nothing to say that we couldn't kind of slip into this where he feels he has to prove something. Um, and all these personalities I studied are quite willing to hurt other people to prove that they're superior and can be dominant. So I'm an optimist with um, a great deal of caution, I guess. Well, let's take a break 
uh, and leave people in that uh, uh, ambig- ambiguity. And when we get back, I, I want to ask you about Barack Obama. What do you say? Okay. All right, we're back from the break. The book by Bill Eddy is called Why We Elect Narcissists and Sociopaths and How We Can Stop Them. Best-selling author uh, uh, of another book called Five Types of People Who Can Ruin Your Life. You have, you have a knack for naming your books, Bill Eddy, I have to admit. Um, five Types of People Who Can Ruin Your Life. Uh, wait, can you give us a, a primer on that one? Yeah, that's really the interpersonal book. And that, that uh, was my most recent, the book right before Why We Elect. And it really sums up what I'd been teaching and writing and learning about with interpersonal conflict in families, in the workplace, legal disputes, neighbor disputes. And in that, I looked at the five tendency towards high conflict personality disorders, borderline, narcissistic, sociopathic, or antisocial, paranoid, and histrionic, and talked about them in daily life examples and gave people a method for dealing with it, which I call the CARS method, connecting, analyzing, responding, and setting limits. And so that really summarizes how to recognize and deal with the people who I estimate are about 10% of people who have high-conflict uh, tendency personalities. So everybody knows some. They're in our lives. But I think the goal is to learn how to manage the relationship with them, um, not just avoid them because there's so many. But they can be quite dangerous potentially um, as individuals. And I've dealt with a lot of divorces as a divorce lawyer with people Uh, getting away from people with these personalities. I've helped people in the workplace, employers and employees deal with this. So that book, uh, Five Types of People Who Can Ruin Your Life, is the interpersonal level um, of this issue with HCPs. With HCPs, high-conflict personality people, you talk about how they have a target. Can you describe that a little bit? Yeah, they all are are almost surprising in how they have a target of blame. And this is the key characteristic. So in the workplace, they all, these are your bullies. They pick on somebody, and it may change who they pick on. Um, in the neighborhood, some neighborhoods have a community bully um, who fights over parking in front of their house or other other issues that really become absurd sometimes. And people have killed each other over parking in front of their house. Um, So, yeah, I kind of lost track of my my question. (laughs) What was your question there? I got off. Well, I think that explains it. Um, And uh, the way that I've always conceptualized these people, I don't know if this is incompatible with your conceptualization, is, for example, with the parking uh, conflict person, of course, it's hard to know. I mean, there's various different paths to that kind of anger. I mean, one could be legitimate, like, you know, stop parking in that spot or I don't know, who knows. But I think a common unreasonable uh, path to that anger is some people are traumatized growing up. And you write about this in your book, too. Yeah. And mistreated in some way. And they 
perhaps were take, you know, they, their possessions were taken away from them by their parents or their siblings or, you know, bullies. And they are very defended about their own possessions. And, and it's not just an intellectual thing. Like I like to hold on to my things, but that when I allow people to invade my space, then I will lose on important things in life like shelter and food and safety. And so I must be hypervigilant. And this isn't a conscious decision. It's something they learn at the age of two, three, four years old. And so when someone does something that they dislike in front of their house, uh, parking wise, it is a visceral reaction for them that is related to the trauma they went through. And, uh, they will run outside and, and their distress level is spiking. They're, they're in a fight or flight. And you write about this too, I think in your book yeah. um, mm-hmm. that uh, they're not rational in that moment. They're not saying, okay, I'm, I, I like myself. I deserve that. You know, they're not thinking those things that they're just in a panic because they connect whatever's happening, this parking situation to be related to their, baseline safety as if the person was walking into their house with a gun and react accordingly because that's how it feels to them. Um, is this compatible with your conceptualization? Yeah, I think, I think you're exactly right that the, the emotions take over and that's what we see with um, many high conflict people is the unmanaged emotions that they shift into this kind of state of fight, flight, or freeze that's very defensive and protective. What's interesting to me about it is some of it may be that early life trauma, and I think there's a significant amount of that in high-conflict people. But also there's people without any history of trauma that also have this pattern. And I think to some extent it may be inborn for some people. That personality development's really you know, your, what, you, what you're born with, your early childhood, and the culture you grow up in. And I've come over the years, actually, 1980s, when I first was trained in personality disorders, when I was becoming a child and family therapist. And I become more and more to believe how much may be inborn, because I've dealt with so many people who didn't have a history of trauma. Uh, many do. But I think there's a percent of high-conflict people that this is kind of their, their um, it's a trait, it's a personality trait they're born with. So some people on the right would say, okay, fine, you can bash Trump all you want. What we believe and what a lot of commentaries will identify are signs that Barack Obama is a high-conflict personality, narcissistic person. What would you say to that? Well, I think, first of all, if we start with narcissism, that that many people have said that, and I think he probably has narcissistic traits, that that um, is, was a characteristic of him that in some ways uh, hurt him because he maybe listened to himself more than people he should have listened to. Um, in terms of a high-conflict person, I don't see him as preoccupied with blaming others or any particular individual or group. And in many ways, my, my view is the fault for him was that he was actually weak, 
that, for example, he drew a red line in the sand against uh, Syria's chemical weapons. And then when they used them, he backed off. Um, and that's that's kind of the opposite of what high-conflict people do. They draw lines in the sand and fight, fight, fight. They have a hard time stopping fighting. So I'd say yes to the narcissistic traits, but I'm not, I don't, I'd probably say no to high-conflict personality. I didn't see those characteristics played out with him. What about Bill Clinton? I think he, for sure, um, narcissistic traits. And I'm, I'm not so sure also, again, with him, with high-conflict personality. Uh, some people may say he's got some hints of sociopathic traits, um, certainly the idea of, of his involvement with women and, and lying about that, some dominance um, with that, some disregard of social rules, etc. cetera. Um, so, you know, he may have, had, may have had a little bit of both of those personalities, but I don't remember him having targets of blame um, as... You know, so I, I wouldn't really see him also as a high conflict personality, but all these personality traits—narcissistic, sociopathic, etc.—hurt uh, them. You know, make them less successful uh, for or, themselves as well or, as sometimes hurt other people, or make them more uh, likely to be elected. Right. Well, it's it's interesting because if you look back over like the last thirty years, I think we, we started to see that the more um, aggressive people were, the more aggressive the politician was, the more likely they were um, to get elected. But not only more aggressive, but more narcissistic and potentially more psychopathic. I I would say, yes, we're we're heading that way. Because if, you know, I've been coming that way. Like, because I I, I would tend to agree with you that uh, based on nothing other than what I can tell from the media, that, and accounts from people close to uh, Bill Clinton and Barack Obama and Donald Trump, that narcissism is a, is a theme there. And the percentage of Americans who possess those traits is at, at that extreme is pretty low. Right. So, well, it's about the biggest study said about 6% of, yeah. of, of personality disorder, but I think there's more with traits, but not a disorder. So yeah, but we, we could agree that uh, it's, it's got to be below 50% in terms of how many people oh, for are, sure. are, are at that level. And yet so many of them become presidents of the United States. So there must be something about that personality type that either drives them to uh, endure the difficulties that uh, come with running for president, but also the, the swagger that is attractive to voters. We want, you know, like, like, um, uh, uh, Bill uh, or Carter, Jimmy Carter was, um, I, you know, I guess you could say he was slightly narcissistic, but if anything, he was just extremely intellectual and very thoughtful. I don't know your, your take on, on Carter. Yeah. Um, and he's one of the, he was one of the most hated presidents at the time uh, during, during his, um, during, during his uh, time in office. And, some of that's circumstantial in terms of the oil embargo and all that kind of stuff. But, right. um, but when I look back at 
the qualities that I would like in a president. I, I often think back to Carter, um, mm. someone who thinks, someone who's real, someone who admits when he's wrong, someone who listens, someone who tries to listen to scientists and tries to build a consensus. And I mean, of course, there are other sides to Jimmy Carter, but, and I just think like, when in the, how in the world are we going to get someone like that elected? Um, you know, well, it's harder now <laughs> because I think you're right that, that what gets people elected, first of all, narcissistic traits may help somebody pick themselves up and keep going and help them ignore negative feedback and believe in themselves. Even when other people say they're stupid and incompetent and all that, they may shrug it off when it becomes a disorder is when they no longer learn. And to me, it's interesting to follow many politicians, you know, local, local community, state, federal level, who lose an election, and then they run again. And to see which ones have learned and changed and which ones are just doing the same thing, only harder. And some people end up with you know, like 7% in the polls the next time they go around because they don't do anything different and don't learn. So I think a little bit of narcissistic traits may be okay, but if they don't learn, it's going to be a problem. But I think today we're really trying to elect people based on their entertainment value. And, and the people, I wanted to say this earlier, but I just thought of it now, narcissists and sociopaths, because they lack the internal restraints of empathy and remorse, are more willing to tell false stories, more willing to hurt people in order to get ahead. And I think that's where you see the HCPs knock out their opponents who would actually be much better leaders because they're willing to just do whatever it takes to get there, whereas the reasonable leaders stop themselves. They stop short. There's things they won't say. There's things they won't do. And I think that's what we saw when Trump was running against, what was it, 15 other Republican candidates in 2016, you know, in the primary, is those were all people who'd already had experience in government, experience in politics. I think everybody there had been elected to something before. And they had kind of the restraint you have to have to be a politician who's effective once you're in office. And so what we're getting is people who are so unrestrained, they're ineffective in governing, but they're highly effective at the telling the stories it takes to get elected. So I think that's what we really, that's part of the skills we need to learn is how to discriminate between the fantasies being spun by an HCP and the realities being told, like Jimmy Carter saying, hey, we've got an environmental problem with oil. We've got to look at dealing with this. And, and that's who we really should have listened to 40 years ago or 30 years ago. Are Republicans more likely to elect an HCP? You know, I really see this as, as on the far right or the far left. I think that at this point in time, that that that's possible, but I, I'm cautious because I've seen, we've seen people on the left um, 
And what's interesting is, is I'm in San Diego and we had a Democratic mayor five years ago who had these characteristics, got elected, and within eight months was pushed out of office because he, he offended so many people as well as sexually harassed so many women before the Me Too movement. I think of governors who've been thrown out, Elliot Spitzer in New York, who, who was a fighter. And at first, people on the left liked him because he was fighting for good things for the left. But he alienated so many people that when he got caught with a prostitute, no one wanted to support him, and he got pushed out of office. So I, I generally approach this as a risk for Republicans and Democrats. I don't see it as more one or the other. It's, it, they could pop up anywhere, including where you work. Does sexual improprieties go hand in hand with HCPs? I think, I think they do um, because that's such a common characteristic. And if you were to look at the entertainment people that have gotten in trouble with me too, the Harvey Weinsteins, the, the, some of the actors and, and news people is part of it was they wanted to be dominant. They wanted power. And they wanted to use that power for sex as one, one of the traits, uh, one of the rewards of becoming powerful. And almost an expectation, like, why are you offended that I expect this? And so I think it's part of the package. And that's why it's not just about politics. It's boards of directors that elect CEOs that are like this. Um, communities that, ex, you know, elect school boards and homeowners associations. But I think it is part of the package. It's part so, of being a sociopath and a narcissist, yeah. So in your, your book title, you have, you know, why we elect these people. And then you, your second part is how and how do we stop? And I suspect that part of it is to buy your book, right? And uh, <laughs> listen to this podcast and, and also right. uh, in the effort to become aware of it. And I, I think it's already because I don't think I've ever um, thought about it this way before, but I think it is something to watch out for, particularly in your own uh, political party that uh, you should, just because someone is saying things that you like, it doesn't mean necessarily that they're going to be an effective politician, meaning that they can work with people and actually get things done and that we should all be uh, careful about that. Um, but what else can we do as individuals to stop electing these people? Well, I think that for candidates, that they need to learn how to run against somebody like this. And one thing that I point out in this part of the book, the last third of the book, is that candidates need to be as assertive as HCPs are aggressive. And I learned this as a lawyer, that... When the other side says a bunch of BS and they're saying it over and over again, people believe it. Well, you've got to say facts. You've got to say the reality over and over again, just as much. You've got to put as much energy into being assertive as they put into being aggressive. So they make a statement. You're going to need to make a statement that says, actually, that's an example of all or nothing thinking. And the reality is such and such. Or that solution was tried 30 years ago, and this is what we learned. So whatever it is, it needs to be responded to as quickly as possible, as powerfully as possible. And one of the things that I've noted in reading 
and researching this book is that HCPs talk about 10 times as much as everybody else as politicians. And so that's one of the striking things of, I read about Hitler is that he and the Nazis were constantly talking, constantly telling people their point of view, conditioning people to their point of view. But I also noticed this today. So we have Trump with his statements all the time on Twitter. In Europe, we have politicians giving, one of them gives three speeches a day. Um, others are constantly out there. And that's part of how social media lets them communicate personally to so many people. And so people, people that are running against an HCP have to have just as much energy, but put it into factual responses not emotional responses. So that's one thing. Um, how, did, how did Hillary Clinton fail at that? Uh, she didn't do that. She tweeted, I don't know, maybe once out of every 20 times that Trump tweeted. Um, she said kind of some factual things in response to some of his stuff that wasn't um, very accurate. But by and large, she didn't, she didn't take, she didn't put the same energy into um, the emotional campaign and the verbal campaign. And she would, I'd be, I would say, a traditional politician in that she spent a lot of time on her policies. Um, she talked to donors. She talked to uh, people in particular communities with her campaign. But she didn't do the kind of aggressive constant speaking, constant messaging that, uh, that Trump did. And, and also, of course, the TV, uh, Trump got so much more time on TV because he made himself interesting by saying extreme things. So people almost got used to what's the extreme thing he's going to say today. And I think the way to deal with that you know, if, if Hillary had said, and here's the factual message of the day, if she was to match him one for one, um, my guess is she would have won even in the States that uh, I think she would have won all the, she would have won the electoral college as well. But she really was playing much more strategically in an old politics way. And I think new politics is all about relationships, the relationship of the candidate directly with the voters, and that the new media makes that possible and now makes that necessary. Do you see anyone doing that effectively, uh, uh, you know, matching HCPs one for one? Um, you mean in the Democratic candidates now? Uh, any candidate, uh, you know, Republican, Democrat, any, any candidate. Um, well, I think... It's interesting that they have to have a simple, repetitive message. I think Bernie Sanders has done that. Um, he, you know, focuses. Actually, he's got his targets of blame, so that message may appeal to people. Um, I think it's interesting. Elizabeth Warren is is kind of a mix of Bernie and Hillary, and yet she's right now getting a lot of attention because she is a serious. Uh, person with policies. So policies repeated and over and over again may be part of the way to match the emotional statements. Um, I think Buttigieg, 
has said things like responding pretty quickly to statements that um, are not accurate and setting them straight um, and saying that's an example of such and such and here's some information. I think what's what's going to hurt the Democrats is if they spend too much time fighting with each other and having a large field. If one person comes forward and matches Trump kind of statement for statement with emotions, with facts, you know, and Biden's trying to do that to some extent, um, then they may, they may match him. I think in Europe that, uh, I'm trying to remember the country where, where someone, an HCP was defeated and a woman was elected. Uh, I'm blanking on where that was. But she took this approach. She had her team every day uh, respond and put out messages of reality. And she succeeded in beating an HCP that way. Uh, so that's the type of that's the type of thing that will work. I think the person that will win the next election, wherever it is, whatever office it is, is the person who communicates most frequently directly with the public. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense to me. And uh, I wouldn't have thought about that because I guess I'm old enough to be an old politician and, uh, <laughs> you know, and I'm not a politician, but to appreciate old politicians and the way that things were done in the past, which was more steady, uh, less, uh, less Twitter obsessed, uh, more facts, fact base. Um, you know, you, you, you get interviewed once a month and you release your talking points and, you know, you, you have your press, re- you have your press agent talk to the media, um, in this very kind of slow way. Um, and, uh, that to me seems, um, respectable and, and the and the opposite seems unseemly to me. But of course, the cat's out of the bag and Twitter is here and we can't act like it doesn't exist. And we can't act like it doesn't actually matter in, in uh, political campaigns. And so uh, those politicians who wake up and actually can play the game well, and it's just kind of sad actually to me that a politician would have to play that game because of course an HCP it wakes up in the morning and the first thing they want to do is go to Twitter. They're high, you know, they, you don't have to, you don't have to tell Donald Trump to have a good or an effective social media campaign. He's compelled to, to do it at 4am sometimes. And whereas other people who aren't HCPs, they have to drum up the motivation because they're, they're more concerned about other things that probably have to do with more of the reality of, of, of life and actually like trying to make a difference and, you know, garner support from other politicians. And so it, it's just kind of sad to me that we have to do this, do with this now. Yeah. I, I would say though, because I've, I've used this approach in legal cases over the last 10, 15 years after 25 years being a lawyer and figuring this out is to give that factual information that's repetitive and frequent, um, as frequent as the sometimes abs- absurd emotional statements, is okay. Because it's not throwing mud, and it is educating people on issues. And so while it's sad that they have to shift this approach, I think that they can. 
And I think you're right that Twitter is not going away. So it's people learning how to use Twitter, but how to use Twitter at having a respectful campaign, an informational campaign, as well as one that's geared to the general public in a friendly emotional way. And I think that's how leadership will eventually uh, come out of all of this once people start discriminating and learning, you know, candidates how to do it and voters which way to respond. So I'm, that's the optimism. And maybe I, I want to emphasize that. But in the meantime, until we get this done and people learn these skills, we, we do face a lot of danger. So it's, it's a lot to learn. Well, I certainly hope you're right, Bill. And perhaps if more people buy your book, including uh, politicians, then maybe uh, we'll get there faster. Thanks. Thanks for coming on the show, Bill. Again, the book is called Why We Elect Narcissists and Sociopaths and How We Can Stop! Exclamation point. And I like your graphic here. You have a voter's box and there's a there's a voting ballot that's in the shape of a devil. So, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> that's the um, message. <laughs> Don't let them in. Interesting graphic. Um, so thanks for coming on the show, Bill. I, it was really interesting to talk with you. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Kirk. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining us out there. Please take care of yourself. Avoid high-conflict high personalities and stop electing them because you deserve it. You really, really do. 